Welcome to the Medical Republic podcast. I'm Francine Crimmins. And I'm Felicity Nelson. It's Friday the 5th of June. And we've had quite a few interesting COVID-19 stories pop up over the last week. And we've got Bianca Nogrady, our live blogger, here to tell us all about it. Hello, um, and welcome back to the podcast and to the live blog, um, which is getting a little quieter at the moment. And this is a good thing because it means that things are quietening down on the COVID-19 front, at least in Australia. So this is a positive. (laughs) I've been interviewing uh, experts overseas this week for a feature and it's definitely not quiet overseas. (laughs) It's, yeah, a lot of panicking happening. But back to Australia, what's been happening this week, Bianca? So the hydroxychloroquine saga continues and, I mean, it's, you couldn't make this stuff up. It's just, it's epic. It's epic. Oh, you know, we'll look back on this as it will be case studies written about this whole saga. But so the very quick background, there were two studies, one in the Lancet, one in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, the Lancet one was the most significant because it was a study that analysed deregistered hospital data for, it was, I think it was something like tens of thousands of uh, COVID-19 patients around the world. So this was data, it was part of a, um, a kind of a collaboration of hospitals. There were over 100 of hospitals around the world. And the data was, um, well, this collaboration would kind of um, technologically mediated, I guess for lack of a better word, by a company called Surgisphere. So this particular study in The Lancet, it found that patients treated with either hydroxychloroquine, chloroquine alone, or in combination, either in combination with a macrolide, had higher in-hospital mortality and a higher risk of new onset ventricular arrhythmias bad news. So that suddenly all of these hydroxychloroquine studies around the world were being um, put on hold, they were called off, it was a big, big deal. Um, But then some Australian researchers and the eagle-eyed Melissa Davey at The Guardian, uh, who's the health editor, noticed that there was something wrong with the Australian figures, that they didn't actually match up the, the mortality figures didn't match up to the dates that were included in the study. So they started digging and boom, it turns out that there is something not right about this data. The raw data wasn't provided. There was some ethical concerns in terms of um, ethics wasn't, approval wasn't sought for this um, for this analysis. The company that's involved with this, Surgisphere, um, is a very, very small company. No one has really heard of it. A lot of its employees had no science background or qualifications whatsoever. They weren't providing the raw data for analysis. So it just, it smelt funny. Um, So anyway, then the Lancet, there was an open letter from a hundred and something uh, researchers around the world, you know, calling it, raising raising concerns about this data. And then both the Lancet and the New England Journal issued formal expressions of concern. Um, And then the last 24 hours, the new development is that both of the papers, the Lancet and the New England one, have been retracted. The New England one was, um, because it's observational data, the New England one was looking at cardiovascular mortality, sorry, cardiovascular comorbidities, I think, and mortality. I can't remember exactly what it found, but I'm sus- I suspect it probably showed that cardiovascular comorbidities were associated with greater mortality. So anyway, so both those papers have now been retracted. Um, a lot of the um, the trials, so the WHO, which originally called a halt to its hydroxychloroquine trial, has now announced it's restarting it. The Australian hydroxychloroquine study has announced it's still going ahead because obviously there was a lot of questions raised about it. So. After this whole kerfuffle, where are we now on hydroxychloroquine? We're kind of back at square one. We actually don't know if it does anything. I think there has still been other studies that have raised concerns about the possibility of new ventricular arrhythmias, of a higher in-hospital mortality. So I think, 
I don't know that we're going to find that this is like the new miracle cure. It doesn't seem very likely at this point, but obviously there's um, a lot of interest in are there subgroups of patients for whom this might offer some benefit. Um, I don't know enough about the mechanism of action to know why it is that hydroxychloroquine actually got called on in the first place. But um, anyway, there are a number of randomised um, controlled clinical trials that are now going ahead, which hopefully will give us a much more definitive answer than what we've had so far. The other thing that we've seen over the last few weeks has been uh, specific studies looking at, you know, how COVID-19 affects different groups of people differently. And in the last week, I've noticed that there has been some studies into patients with intellectual disability. Bianca, what do we know about increased risk in this group, particularly with patients with trisomy? So this is a very small cohort study, but it does suggest that individuals with Down syndrome may be at significantly greater risk of contracting COVID-19 in the first place and may also experience more severe disease. So this was a retrospective single centre study in New York. Um, They looked at 4,615 patients who were hospitalised with COVID-19. And at that scale, they were expecting to see maybe one person with Down syndrome that turned up in that population um, based on just that that kind of populate that area the population the demographics and they ended up with six so they then from that calculated that that uh, individuals with down syndrome may have a nearly ninefold higher risk of hospitalization with covid-19 compared to individuals without down syndrome and this was in the same age range as well um, and the other interesting thing was with age was that the median age of those patients with down syndrome was significantly lower than the median age of covid-19 patients without down syndrome so it suggests that the um, individuals with down syndrome who have been hospitalized are much younger um, and when they looked at the actual outcomes so they did an age sex and ethnicity matched um, kind of case control analysis um, with 30 controls and they found that the um, numbers of um, patients with Down syndrome who progressed to sepsis was much higher than in the control group and so this is apparently a particular concern with Down syndrome because um, these individuals do are at a higher risk of mortality from sepsis than um, non people without Down syndrome, uh, but who have sepsis. So it does raise the possibility that uh, we need to be extra careful in terms of prevention and, and also uh, treatment and management of COVID-19 in these individuals. And I know another group of concern has been children, uh, particularly children with who are on immunosuppressive therapies. Um, what do we know about that, Bianca? Well, this is fortunately a slightly reassuring study. Again, very small. A lot of these kind of studies are very small numbers, um, particularly in children. Um, But it does suggest that even children who are on long-term immunosuppressive therapy, um, they don't seem to be at greater risk of more severe disease. So they still seem to have the same relatively mild course of disease as as children who are otherwise healthy. Uh, So this was 18 children uh, from 16 paediatric nephrology centres across Europe. So they were all on immunosuppressive medication like glucocorticoids or tacrolimus or mycophenolates um, for kidney disease, for transplantation. So, you know, a group that you would normally think would be at fairly high risk of uh, infection and and of, um, you know, severe consequences of infection. But... um, Fortunately, out of these 18 kids, only one of them needed high-flow uh, nasal cannula oxygen. Um, none of them required ventilation, and more than 80% of them didn't require any oxygen support. So 11 of the 18 kids were admitted to hospital, but none of them ended up in intensive care. So again, it's a small sample, but it does suggest that uh, these children who are you know, 
obviously their their immune systems are aren't, aren't in the best shape, but still they're still showing the same mild um, infection course that's with COVID nineteen that we're seeing in in kids who are otherwise healthy. But it's not always bad news with COVID-19. There does appear to be um, some strange and slightly encouraging news, and that's that supposedly this viral pandemic has forced people, some people at least, to consider giving up smoking. Is that right? It is. So um, apparently the so the government has this My Quit Buddy app um, to help uh, Australians quit smoking, so it's a support app. And apparently the number of people who have downloaded that app in the first kind of five months of this year is four, four, four times higher than what was being downloaded at the same time last year. So the app was downloaded from January to May this year. The app was downloaded 24,000 times, uh, which I don't necessarily, well, assuming people are downloading it more than once, which I can't imagine why they would be. That's a lot of Australians who are being inspired or motivated or forced by the COVID-19 pandemic to um, to consider quitting smoking and and this is good because there is growing evidence that smokers are at greater risk of developing severe COVID-19. Um, what we don't know is whether it does predispose you to catching COVID-19 in the first place. That that's sort of a little bit difficult to study, uh, partly because you get a lot of healthcare workers who are exposed to COVID-19 who also aren't smokers, and so it skews the demographics quite a bit. So that one's a bit of a complex question, but you know, it, there is there is evidence that smoking is associated with more severe disease course. Um, and actually, just on the smoking thing as well, the um, Australian Health Protection Principal Committee did actually address the question of e-cigarettes recently because uh, obviously there are a lot of people who are taking up e-cigarettes and there are also concerns about um, the interaction between e-cigarette use and COVID-19. There's not uh, any studies of this at the moment, but given um, that there is increasing evidence that e-cigarettes can uh, pose harm to the heart and to the lungs, that's not necessarily something that you want going on at the same time as uh, COVID-19 infection. So they've kind of put out a statement earlier saying, you know, smoking and e-cigarettes, both of these things are not things you want to be mixing with COVID-19. So we've been throwing everything we've got at COVID-19, you know, all the medications we can think of, but what about surgery um, for patients who are in hospital with COVID-19? Is that a good idea? Um, Probably not, particularly if you are male or you're aged over 70. So this is quite an important study, particularly as we see a resumption of elective surgery in Australia. And admittedly, you know, our COVID-19 numbers are pretty low now, but it's certainly something worth bearing in mind for future. So it was a study that was published in The Lancet um, and it was an international cohort looking at 1,128 surgical patients who had confirmed COVID-19. Um, three quarters of these patients were undergoing elective surgery. A quarter of them were um, undergoing emergency surgery. And the incidence of um, complications, particularly pulmonary complications, so pneumonia, um, acute respiratory distress syndrome, um, you know, unexpected uh, need for post-operative ventilation, um, was much, much higher. And this was uh, particularly the case in, in men and in patients aged over 70. And of the patients who do did experience pulmonary complications, um, over a third of them died within 30 days of surgery, which is really bad, you know, it's bad odds, I guess. Um, and that 30-day mortality risk was 75% higher in men and more than twofold higher in individuals who are aged over 70 compared to those aged under 70. So the authors uh, of this study did say, you know, we really need to be considering 
the risks associated with operating on someone with COVID-19 um, you know, versus the benefits and, and um, particularly with this suggestion that the, the risks could be significantly higher. Okay, so surgery is probably not that promising, but what about um, anticoagulants? I thought I saw there was some new advice on that. Yes, yeah, so the National COVID-19 Clinical Evidence Task Force, which is this uh, kind of multi-institutional, multi-group task force that's working on these living guidelines uh, for management of COVID-19 in Australia. And in fact, they've just put out another update, which we'll be writing up for the blog this afternoon. But uh, late last week, they did update their advice on the use of higher dose anticoagulants in adults with severe to critical COVID-19. So this uh, touches on this notion that um, venous thrombosis is and pulmonary embolism are particularly problematic that they seem to be one of the kind of if not a cause of death certainly a cause of significant morbidity in people with severe COVID-19 and and in the past this task force has said you know in moderate patients that you could look at low-dose anticoagulants but now they've actually taken it up a notch and said in severe and critical cases um, look at treating them with higher dose anticoagulants Um, and I think though yeah they were looking at sort of prophylactic dosing uh, focusing on preferably low molecular weight heparin and obviously with this, unless there is a contraindication. So if there is a contraindication, obviously don't give them higher dose or don't give them any anticoagulants. But it's, yeah, it's a it's an evolving landscape, but it is um, responding to the growing evidence of the role of, um, of clotting in, um, in COVID-19 disease. So going back to overseas for a minute, uh, there has been some data out of France which showed the number of cardiac arrests doubled in the early months of this year. Is there any evidence um, and how strong is that evidence linking this with the COVID-19 infection rates in France? Yeah, so this is kind of fascinating. I've, I, I'm, I'm really intrigued by the kind of these unexpected effects of COVID-19. Um, and, you know, we've talked in the past about things like um, ambulance call-outs and Um, what's happening to all of these people who would normally be turning up to hospital with heart attacks and strokes and who aren't because they're afraid of contracting COVID-19 in hospital or because they can't get out of the house or for whatever reason. Um, And so this was a study in Paris that was looking at, um, it looked sort of uh, historical data, but comparing it to current data at the number of out of hospital cardiac arrests in during the pandemic compared to before the pandemic. So they could, they could do this because they've got an ongoing database of non-traumatic out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in Paris and, and surrounding suburbs. So they were able to compare sort of for the, you know, the past how many years, five years, and then looking at uh, what's happened this year. And so what they found was the number of out-of-hospital cardiac arrests doubled at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic in Paris. So we're talking a weekly incidence. The maximum weekly incidence um, before the pandemic started was about 13 each week of out-of-hospital out of cardiac arrests. By mid-March, when the pandemic was at its peak, it was 26. Um, And what they estimated is that around one third of this increase was directly attributed to COVID-19 infection. So I'm I'm presuming that, and it was a very short paper, so they didn't go into a detail, but I'm presuming that these are cardiac arrests happening at home in individuals who are infected with COVID-19, who for one reason or another haven't been able to get to hospital. Um, but it could also be that um, a lot of the, inc- the sort of non-directly COVID-19 related increase, um, maybe uh, those cases are also individ- individuals who, you know, in a normal world would just would 
would get the chest pain, would get the symptoms, would call an ambulance and go to hospital. But because of COVID-19 and because of the threat um, that the pandemic poses to actually stepping outside your front door, have chosen not to do that. And so instead, these people are having cardiac arrests at home or on the street or, or wherever else. So it's just a, another of a myriad of these tiny but significant effects that this pandemic has had, which you know we will be studying for decades to come. Yeah, I just wonder if that's the same thing in Australia, if you're seeing similar effects. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't seen, you know, what the data is on, um, like, ambulance call-outs. Because I remember when the bushfires were on, there was some really interesting study data on um, ambulance calls out, call-outs and emergency presentations for respiratory infections. Um, sorry, not respiratory infections, for respiratory problems, breathing problems. So we, you know, that data does get collected and it'd really be interesting to know what that looks like with respect to yeah to heart attacks in Australia um, definitely a story to be looked at I think so yeah that's all I've got to say on the COVID nineteen situation but Felicity I understand you're working on quite an intriguing feature what what's going on there yeah so my starting point was really this paper that came across my desk from uh, the New England Journal of Medicine um, and it was looking at how COVID nineteen and influenza cause damage in the lungs. Um, and it was a pretty small study. So they've got seven lung samples um, from people who died from the two different diseases and then 10 controls. And they were really just sort of getting some histology, looking at the disease processes and trying to figure out the differences. And what was, you know, what meant that it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is, you know, this prestigious journal, was because they found some, you know, significant differences that were kind of interesting. So one of them was that alveolar capillary microthrombi were nine times more prevalent in patients with COVID-19 as in patients with influenza. So for the non-doctors who are listening, that's just basically those tiny little blood clots that you get in the lung blood vessels. So the other thing that was different was that in the lungs of people with COVID-19, the amount of new blood vessel growth was about three times higher than in the lungs of people with influenza. And both of these findings were statistically significant. So you can see why this might be an interesting news story. It's like, oh, look, these two diseases quite different. So what I did is I then called the ICU specialist from Harvard University who wrote the accompanying editorial of that for that research paper in um, this journal. So this is Assistant Professor Corey Harden, who's an ICU specialist at Massachusetts General Hospital in the US. He's been treating quite a few patients with COVID-19. Their hospital's seen about 400 patients come through the ICU since March. And it was just really interesting having this phone call with him because he was really pushing back against this idea that COVID-19 is particularly different or unique in terms of its pathophysiology, so in terms of its disease mechanisms. So obviously we can't pretend that COVID-19 is is similar to other diseases in terms of its epidemiology because it's obviously, you know, caused a huge amount of damage and infected a lot more people than any other disease we've seen since, you know, 1918. But in terms of how it affects the lungs, he was saying that it was actually quite similar to other diseases that he sees in the wards um, all the time. Uh, So influenza pneumonia is probably the main one. And he thought it was quite important to push back against the idea that this is a really strange, new, weird disease that we've never seen before. Um, And I just thought that was a really interesting perspective. And, And, you know, I can't say whether that perspective is you know, a mainstream perspective. But I think it's, it's an interesting thing to consider. And, and the point he was trying to make was that due to this pandemic being, um, you know, a big crisis, there's been this rush to publish, there's been this um, need to kind of investigate what's going on. And, and a lot of the, uh, the journal articles that are coming out are 
are really making the disease seem much more physiologically unique than it actually is, according to his perspective as a person who works in ICUs all the time. Um, and so, yeah, the feature I'm, I'm going to do is, is looking at, you know, his perspective, but then also the, the other side of that, which is what a lot of experts are saying, which is, no, COVID-19 is, is quite strange and it's quite unique. So, you know, you could look at the cytokine storm in the lungs or you could check out some of the strange things that happen with blood clots and strokes and um, pulmonary embolisms. Um, and, you know, the, the strange lesions that people get on their toes um, in some cases and and also the uh, the secondary inflammatory responses that some children are getting. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting debate, a little bit academic. Um, love to hear your thoughts, Bianca, on that as, as our COVID-19 blogger. Well, I think it's fascinating. I mean, I think, of course, it's going to be different to every other disease because it's a different virus. Uh, so I, I find it interesting that he's kind of downplaying it. And I can imagine that from a, you know, an ICU doctor's perspective, it's just how do we treat this? Um, but it is also a, a new, you know, it's a new species of disease. It's it's like we've discovered a, a new kind of a new plant or a new, and it's like, well, how is it different? That's kind of the fundamentals of taxonomy. How is it different? And um, how is it similar? And how does it behave? And what is its ecosystem and its niche? So, um, yeah, I think it's fascinating. And ultimately, I, it is important to understand these differences. Mm. Yeah, I think the point he was trying to make is that at the very end stage of the disease, uh, people tend to get a condition which they call um, ARDS, it's acute respiratory distress syndrome. He said clinically and pathologically, that disease uh, is the same in influenza pneumonia and COVID-19 pneumonia. And there's a you know set of definitions, it's called the Berlin definition that was decided in 2012. And you know, if you look at that definition, those two diseases are pretty similar. Um, and he said that we have a lot of treatments and we know what works for ARDS um, and we should probably stick to that treatment because there's been a lot of evidence-based work on that. Uh, and these new treatments that we're trying to experiment with um, haven't got a lot of evidence for them. So, you know, the question of what we do right now is should we come from, you know, where we have a lot of knowledge rather than trying to use a whole lot of things where we don't have a lot of knowledge. So I thought, yeah, kind of interesting approach. And it differs very much from what, uh, you know, we're obviously hearing through a lot of the research that's coming out, which is very much focusing on the differences and not the similarities. Absolutely. And so we can't end this podcast without talking about Crazy Socks for Docs Day, um, which is the the day that marks uh, mental health among uh, doctors and physicians around the world. Um, Bianca, what can you tell us about that? Well, yeah, it's I mean it's always important to be aware of the you know the health mental health of healthcare professionals, but particularly so during a global pandemic. Um, and for example, there is some evidence from a survey of uh, 1,300 healthcare workers in Italy, and nearly half of frontline and secondline healthcare workers um, in Italy during the pandemic have reported symptoms of post-traumatic stress, and a quarter have experienced symptoms of depression. Um, and this was particularly high amongst GPs compared to other healthcare workers, and particularly amongst um, younger healthcare professionals and women. So it does really suggest that now more than ever, we need to be aware of the toll that uh, normal work and then work in a pandemic takes on the mental health of healthcare professionals. And Crazy Socks Day is a really great way of just of highlighting that because, um, yeah, we, we need you guys to be healthy. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a very important message. Okay, that's all we got time for today. But thank you, everyone, for joining us on the show. Um, 
If you'd like to hear more from us, you can subscribe to the Medical Republic podcast on Spotify or iTunes or any podcaster of your choice. Thanks for your time.